Well, if you have a Bible with you, we're back in Matthew chapter 5. We're back in the Sermon on the Mount. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here at the church. But before we jump in, let me mention just a couple of things to you. I want to make sure that you're aware that our next membership class is directly after the service, 1 p.m. down in the Palms Rooms where our Redeemer Kids is. Whether you're brand new to us or maybe you've been attending for a while but haven't committed, haven't jumped into membership yet, I encourage you to come. You'll get to meet the various elders and staff of the church. You'll get to hear our vision for ministry in this place. You'll get to meet others who feel new to the church. We'll have, we'll have lunch and then we'll have an interactive time together, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. down in the Palms Rooms. It doesn't commit you to join. It doesn't guarantee you will, but it's your first step in your involvement with our church. A second thing I want to mention is just want to thank you for your prayers for us for our trip to Beirut, Lebanon this past week. Myself and Pastor Scott Zeller, Mike Mathis, Johan Samuel uh, went to Beirut, Lebanon to visit Pastor Marwan, his wife Marcy, visit Corsair Vining, our old youth coordinator, and get to see City Bible Church. Now, they've launched in this past month, and it was great to get to see their new venue, which is wonderful. It's right in the center of the, the Arts District in Beirut, and the meeting hall was full. I don't know what they're going to do. They just launched, and it's, it's full, and it was wonderful to, to feel and to see and to be a part of the diversity there. The room was full of Lebanese and Armenians and Africans and Westerners. There's a, a great mix, much like what we have here at Redeemer every Friday. They meet on Sunday, so I was able to get on a plane last Friday, be there for their worship service on Sunday. And it was encouraging because many of the the members of the church came up to us after the service just thanking us for planting City Bible Church because of the impact it's already had in their lives. And they they spoke of the spiritual growth uh, that they've already had. They were so thankful. And so I just want to thank you, Redeemer Church, for your ongoing commitment to plant churches. Uh, it's not easy to send out people we love, is it? It's not easy to send out resources that we may think we need, but it, it's, it's worth it. It's, it's worth it, and we press on for the sake of the kingdom because God is moving through these gospel outposts in proclaiming the gospel to the world. And for me, getting to see up close City Bible Church was so encouraging. It was a shot of, of encouragement in my own soul to, to, to remind myself that it's worth it. It's worth it to be a sending church. It's worth it to make disciples of all nations. It's worth it, number one, because God calls us to. But number two, we get to see the fruit. We get to see God move in places like Beirut. So please keep City Bible Church, Pastor Marwan, keep them in your prayers that God would use them to be salt and light in that place. Well, as we approach God's word, let us pray again. Oh, Father, it's no mundane task to study your word together. We're looking at your words. Oh, would the word accomplish in us what you gave it for? Enlighten us, comfort us, convict us, and transform us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jorge Rodriguez was a Mexican bank robber and bandit. In the U.S., he robbed many Texas banks. And the Texas Rangers police crossed over into Mexico to find him. And they hunted him down and found him and put a gun to his head. 
And the officer said, you're under arrest for stealing from Texas banks. Lead us to the money or I'll shoot you right here. Well, they, Jorge Rodriguez, there's a problem. He knew no English. The ranger knew no Spanish. So they found a bilingual man and the ranger said to him, tell Jorge this, Jorge Rodriguez, you're under arrest for stealing from Texas banks. Tell me where the money is or I'll shoot you right here. It was translated perfectly. Or Jorge Rodriguez at this point, he's scared. He realizes he, he better lead into the money. And so he says in Spanish, walk a kilometer to the well, go down five rows of stones, pull out the second stone and you'll find all that I've stolen. One million dollars. Well, the ranger asked the interpreter, what did he say? What did he say? And the interpreter said, officer, he said, I'm Jorge Rodriguez and I'm not afraid to die. If you didn't get that, it's okay. It'll come to you later on today with a cup of coffee if you're a little slow today. Well, the translator changed the facts so that he could get the money for himself. Well, the president of my seminary shared this story when speaking at a graduation of soon-to-be pastors, soon-to-be ministers of the gospel. And the point he was making is this. There will be temptation for you to corrupt the message of God's word, to fail to translate God's message properly if there's something in it for you. This is an example of what the religious leaders were doing in Jesus' day. They corrupted the message of God's word and they spread falsehood. There was something in it for them if they would change it. It's tempting to change a story for our benefit. Maybe you've lied to stay out of trouble. Perhaps you've seen a person manipulate the numbers at work. Or maybe you've done that. You've been a victim of fraud. Or you've seen pastors or TV preachers change the message of the Bible so that you would send them more money. Well, these religious leaders distorted Christ's message for a living. They said they loved God's law, or at least that's what they'd love for you to think. And they were accusing Jesus of canceling out that law. And what we have this morning is Jesus' response to that ongoing accusation. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I have three points. Three points. Number one, we'll see the Bible's authority. Number two, we'll see the Bible's fulfillment. And then finally, number three, we'll see the Bible's demands. The Bible's authority, the Bible's fulfillment, and then finally, the Bible's demands. Well, number one, the Bible's authority. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus begins this very passage with a keen sense of his own authority. I have come. It's a significant expression. It's not the usual way of speaking. Normally, you don't just go up to your friends and announce to them, hello, I have now come to you. It's not how we talk. Normally, you just start speaking to your friend. friend. But Jesus' statement would have illustrated a consciousness of mission. Using that language would have implied, it's for this very reason I have come. The law of the prophets was an expression used in Jesus' day to refer to the Hebrew scriptures. It's what we call today the Old Testament. 
Jesus says, I've not come to get rid of any of the scriptures. Now, why would Jesus have to say this? Now, think about it. Jesus has been teaching about life in the kingdom, being poor in spirit, being peacemakers. And here's the accusation that the religious leaders were making against Jesus. Jesus, you said all these things. What about the law? You told us to be salt. You've told us to be light, well and good. But what about the law? The scribes and the Pharisees, they were the law keepers and the theologians. They knew the law and wanted everyone to see that they were keeping the law. And now Jesus is making promises about the kingdom, but not giving them any credit for their perceived law keeping. What Jesus said in the Beatitudes was countercultural, but perhaps even more startling than anything he said in the Beatitudes was what he didn't say. He said nothing about the law. Nothing about tradition or ceremonial keeping or how commendable the law keepers were. Jesus said nothing about the very thing the scribes and Pharisees were building their life upon. But it's not that Jesus was abolishing the scriptures. He's actually saying something very different. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now again, Jesus is speaking a bit differently than we do. For truly I say to you, it's the equivalent of saying amen. Truly, truly. Jesus says with absolute certainty and authority that heaven and earth will pass away before my law does. Jesus doesn't mean here that the place where believers will go for eternity will at one point pass away. Used together as a phrase, heaven and earth, Jesus is talking about the end of created things. That's what that means. He's saying until God's glory and salvation and judgment come to pass at the end of the age, that the Bible will remain. It will remain forever. It's as permanent as the solar system. Not even an, an, an iota or a dot will pass away from it. Now, the iota is actually pointing to the yod, which is the smallest of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The dot was even smaller. It was like a, a little, little comma. It would be attached to, to two letters that would have looked the same otherwise. That little dot would distinguish the one letter from the other letter. There are over 66,000 yods in the Old Testament, lots of dots. And the point, not an iota, not a dot, not a comma, not an apostrophe will pass until all is accomplished. Jesus is absolutely committed to the Old Testament scriptures there's not a stronger statement he can make. It's not just that the words are true. Every letter is true. Every part of a letter is true. Now, it's true that Jesus would lead his followers to understand that the necessity to practice some of the laws, like the, the food laws or circumcision, would no longer be required after his death. But Jesus wasn't coming to destroy the law. Even if they would no longer practice them, the laws would inform and teach the people of God. And that's why even today we love and study the Old Testament. We, we, we love the law. And even though we don't slaughter bulls and goats up here on Friday mornings, we can still be transformed by the words and the meanings of the Old Testament books. Uh, Redeemer Church, how's your study of the Old Testament going? I wonder in your personal devotional 
times as you open up the Word. How's your study of the Old Testament Scriptures, Genesis through Malachi? Jesus seems to think pretty highly of them. It's also why we're committed on Friday mornings to preach from both the New and the Old Testament. So right now we're preaching from Matthew, but we've also in the last two years preached from Hosea. It's why we've preached from 1 John, but we've also preached from Ecclesiastes. It's why we've preached the miracles of Jesus, but we've also preached books like Leviticus, Jonah, the Psalms. We don't want to act as if the Old Testament isn't part of our Bibles. We're not New Testament Christians. Maybe you've even heard of churches called New Testament Church. We're not New Testament Christians. We're, we're biblical Christians. We're Genesis to Revelation Christians. We believe the whole Bible. One way you could be helped by this is by taking our Gulf Training Center course next week on biblical theology. In this course, we're going to look at the whole of Scripture, Genesis all the way through Revelation, and we're going to see it's not two books or even 66 books, really. It's one overarching story of salvation from beginning to end. You'll see how the two Testaments, they, they connect. It's, it's, it's one story of salvation. Oh, friend, because Jesus didn't abolish the Old Testament, we shouldn't act like he did. Jesus believed it to be inspired and true, and so we should strive to understand it. There's not another book like it. It's God's very word to us. It's exhilarating to be able to hold it and to be able to read it. Pastor Pastor John Piper has said of the Bible, it's the word of God. It can't be boring. When it's boring, we're the problem. It's filled with a volcano of joy and energy and power and love and grace and justice and strength. And, and I love what, what Piper says at the end. He says, it can't be boring. The, the world is boring. Movies are boring. The movie Avatar is boring. Oh, friend, the Bible is God's word. Nothing can be more exciting than that. But friend, if we're believing this, if we believe it's God's word, if we believe that it's exciting, if we believe that it's a privilege that we, that we have it, are we reading it? And Star Wars is boring, Avengers is boring. They're nothing compared to this cosmic book. Well, maybe it's a little bit convicting to you or even discouraging because in all honesty, you find the Bible a bit dull or confusing. Perhaps you're even bored with it. Maybe you're bored with it because you haven't really given it a chance. You haven't really worked at actually studying it for understanding and transformation. Because, of course, a really fast, quick skimming of Ezekiel may not inspire you. But the more we read the Bible, the slower we read the Bible, as we meditate on the words, as we seek to understand it day after day, it starts to work in our hearts. Remember last week I told you how to start a revolution in your life. Here's how you start a revolution, right? Is you, you read the Bible and you pray and you do that day after day after day. See, when we start studying our Bibles regularly, we start seeing things in the scriptures. We start seeing how everything's connected. We start seeing just beautiful images of the Savior. We start seeing truth for our lives that can transform us. And we never exhaust God's word. There's always more to learn, and so we study more. It's, it's why believers meet with another believer one-on-one to study. And so when we approach a difficult portion of Scripture, we're helping each other understand it. 
It's why we take classes. It's why we have our golf training center. It's why we have our 8 a.m. classes. It's why we have community groups where we dive into the scripture together. And over time, everything just begins to connect. We start understanding more and we figure out ways to apply the truth of scripture to our very lives. It's like going to an art museum. If you jog through a museum like you would a 10K race, you're not really going to appreciate the paintings on the walls. But if you stop and you take time to pour over the paintings, if you read descriptions and the history of the artist and you get to know them a bit more and their background and you start looking at the intricate brush strokes and you look at the style and then you look at all the little details, you look at what's in the background and you start just examining it and, and, and looking at it, you begin to enjoy it. You begin to see the, the meaning behind the painting. So when we stop and consider the Bible, it's far from boring. If we're bored, we're the problem, not God and his word. When we wake up in the morning, we've got a choice every day. We've got a choice. Do we go and look at the sports scores from the night before? Do we go watch or read the news? Or maybe we just hurry up and get on with our day. Or... Will we read our Bibles? Will we get out God's word to us? Friends, the Bible is a divine book inspired by God. Give it a try. Make it a priority. When we read the Bible, it awakens and strengthens our faith. When we read the Bible, it gives us joy and comfort and encouragement in our trials. It guides us in prayer and decision-making. It's our source of wisdom and warns us of sin. And it's our guide for everlasting joy. Well, we read our Bibles because Jesus says the Bible is the very word of God. The Bible's authority comes from God. That's not all he says. The Bible's authority comes from God, but it's also fulfilled in Jesus. That's the second point this morning. Point number two, the Bible's fulfillment. Again, verse 17 Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, here's another astonishing claim by Jesus. Yes, the words are all true, but they're fulfilled in me. That's a a huge claim. To fulfill means to carry out, to achieve what's promised or predicted. Jesus carries out or fulfills the scripture in several ways. He fulfills it because the whole Bible is about him. After his resurrection, Jesus says that he's talking to his disciples there after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And the the text, the scripture says this of their conversation. It is written that, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He says, the Bible is all about me. Jesus is the true Passover lamb to whom the sacrifices pointed. He's the true high priest of whom Aaron was only a shadow. He's a true son of David, the king of kings, who would rule his people eternally. This is why when we study the Old Testament, we have to see that while there's much to learn about morality and living for God throughout its pages, we can't miss that the Old Testament is primarily about Jesus. So parents, when you're having Bible study and you're Uh, doing family worship times, devotional times with your kids, and you're getting out the scriptures, don't just teach them about the courage of David. Don't just show them that David, David was courageous and that they need to face up against the giants in their lives. 
don't just teach them that Abraham was a man of faith. No, there's truth in those things. We can learn from our heroes, but when you're studying those passages, show them that Jesus is the shepherd king who will lead his people. Show them that we're not like Abraham, actually, in the story. We're more like Isaac. We're there on the altar, ready to receive death, but that that lamb in the thicket, that lamb that will be sacrificed, points to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Well, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Well, another thing, Jesus also fulfills the scriptures because the prophecies about him will all come to pass. The Old Testament is just littered, filled with prophecies pointing to Jesus. So we have specific prophecies, like you'll see in Hosea chapter 5, verse 2, that point to the birthplace of the Messiah. And then you have less explicit pointers, like his call from Egypt in Hosea 11 and fulfilled in Matthew 2. Every prophecy will come true. Every promise will be fulfilled. Every warning and threat will be followed up upon. And Jesus also fulfilled the law and the prophets by living perfectly according to the law. He never sinned, not once. Jesus kept all the commandments of the law flawlessly. He never fell short at a single point. But most of all, the way Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures was by satisfying the demands of the law by dying on the cross. The sacrifices in the Old Testament serve several purposes, but all culminating in pointing people to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for sinners. But the sacrifices weren't enough. They weren't an end in themselves. If that were the case, we'd have goats and bulls up here on the platform this morning. There would be blood everywhere. No, they were signposts to Jesus. The temple sacrifices taught people that the death of a substitute was the only way. They, you could say, paved the way for Christ's death on the cross that would eventually fulfill the sacrificial system. The ongoing sacrifices were building a conditioned reflex in the people. So they should have known, they should have seen that when Jesus would come, they, they would understand it. And when they sinned, they would know they needed a substitute. That's why it was sacrifice after sacrifice. That's why when you read the book of Leviticus, it's over and over and over again, sacrifice one after another. It was always on their minds. If you were of the people of God, you couldn't forget it. And that was the intention now, Jesus says, scribes, Pharisees, you want to know what I think about the law? I haven't abolished it. I actually take the law more seriously than anyone else. I came to fulfill it by my death. See, friends, you and I couldn't keep the law. That's the problem. Not even the Pharisees were good enough. No one is. No, Romans tells us that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one's good behavior is good enough. If you're trusting in following the laws and guidelines of God in order to achieve right standing with God, you'll never make it. Now, if I were to ask you the question, if you were to die today, why should God let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, if your answer is, well, look at how hard I've tried to live a good life. Look at how good I am. Look at how good I am in comparison to those other people. I've not done those really bad sins. I'm pretty good. Well, if, if that's you, I have 
some bad news and some good news. Well, the bad news is you can never get to heaven on the basis of your good works because we can never be good enough. But there's good news, and the good news is you can get a righteousness that is good enough. And that righteousness, though, can't come from within yourself. It's got to come from outside of yourselves. Now, the only way to be forgiven of your sin and have a relationship with God is on the basis of Jesus' fulfillment of the law. Now, that should be music to our ears. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's not our works, but in Jesus and his fulfilling work that we should place our trust. It's by his death and his resurrection from the dead that we can be free from the penalty and the power of sin. If you're here this morning and you've been trusting in your own works to save you, just want to save you some time, save you some energy, and tell you it's a futile attempt doesn't lead you to heaven. It leads you right in the other direction. It leads you helpless and dead. I urge you and encourage you to trust in Jesus and his finished work to save you, and he will. That's, that's the good news. He will save you. Everyone that comes to him by faith and in repentance will be saved. Everyone. He'll free you from bondage and give you everlasting life. The Bible has authority, and the Bible is fulfilled in Jesus. Trust him. Well, those are the first two points, authority, fulfillment. But then finally, and thirdly today, we see what the Bible demands of us. Number three, point number three, the Bible's demands. Well, the question was certainly asked at this point, was Jesus lowering the standard of morality? Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus has such a high view of the law. He says all of it needs to be followed. Well, the kingdom of heaven isn't referring to life after death here, but of God's reign in our life, just like we saw it in the Beatitudes. Now, I don't think the point here is of different levels of reward in the afterlife. Jesus isn't unveiling heaven's reward program here. But it is God's prerogative to determine who's honored in his kingdom. And it seems likely that God would honor those who have honored his word. Now, there is a real sense in Scripture that believers will be rewarded for their faithfulness to God. You can later on today read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. talks about rewards for believers' faithfulness. But any different experiences believers will have in heaven is not something we can understand today or speculate now, this side of heaven. If you have further questions about this and you come to talk to me, I'll not be able to answer them. I honestly don't know what rewards in heaven will look like. But Jesus' point in verse 19 is that we're to pay careful attention to all of God's word. The things we think are important, but also the things that we think are, are less important. We can't relax or be complacent about any of Jesus' teaching. Our attitude towards all of his word has to be serious. No commandment can be taken lightly. So when we see commands to, to rejoice, when we see commands to give generously, when we see commands to be humble, we take those seriously. Because there's a connection between Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the obedience he's demanding Jesus fulfills the law, but it doesn't mean we're off the hook. So because Jesus died for our sins, he fulfills the law. That doesn't mean that we can now go and just sin, although we want. It doesn't mean that now we're, we're free, we're, we're saved, and so we're just going to 
going to do what we want. In fact, it's just the opposite. Now, this is stunning. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's a staggering statement. You'd think if two men were allowed in the kingdom, certainly one would be the Pharisee and the other would be the scribe. I mean, they were famous for praying all the time. They were the ones there in the temple with their hands raised praying. They fasted regularly. They wore pious clothing. Uh, they were the professionals. God's law was their passion. Now, God's law contained 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions, and the Pharisees prided themselves in following each and every one of those laws. They aspired to keep them all. Now, if the eyes of the original hearers weren't popping out of their eye sockets yet, they would be now. The, the, the listener would have thought, wait a second. Now, wait a second. If the Pharisee can't get in, if the scribe can't get into the kingdom of heaven, then I'm doomed. I got no shot. Jesus says you've got to be better than them. Well, how? Well, there's a problem with the Pharisees' righteousness. Their spirituality was like a beach ball that you're trying to push and hold underwater. It doesn't get very deep. They wanted to make spirituality into a list of manageable tasks. When it came to following rules, these guys were self-help specialists. And we're susceptible to this too. We're just as susceptible as they are. How do we do this? Well, one way we can do this is we can make Christianity a bunch of rituals. You know, attending church services regularly. Check. We serve in ministry check. We blindly follow the faith of our parents without caring about a personal relationship with God for ourselves, check. And we go with the flow of the norms of our country's culturally accepted Christian practices, check. Or maybe you put your faith in asceticism. I won't wear this or that ornament or garment. I won't drink this drink or I won't eat this food, I'll, I'll celebrate or I won't celebrate this particular holiday. Check. But Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees to be saved. Now, it would take a righteousness of a different order. See, if you can take a pig out of a pig pen, you could kind of clean it up, and you could put perfume and cologne on it. You can tie a big pink bow around the neck of this pig. But as soon as you let the pig go, what's the pig going to do? It's going to go right back to the mud, right back to the pig pen. It's because you've done nothing to its heart. Now, I've heard it said, never try to teach a pig to sing. It wastes your time, and it annoys the pig. It's because if, you, if you've got a pig on your hands, you'll always have a pig on your hands. You know, the Pharisees were good about putting cologne and perfume on. They were good about putting the pink ribbon around their neck. They were good about dressing a certain way, but they missed the heart of the law. They weren't changed. What the scribes and Pharisees were doing in order to make obedience easier was that they were actually lowering the demands of the law. They made the law 
merely external, and they restricted it to the act alone. No murder, no adultery. Hey, I, I, I don't do those things. We would never do that, but they never dealt with the action behind the sin. Anger, lust. They lower the demands of the Bible. But it's not just pigs and it's not just the Pharisees that do this. It's you and me. We're no different. I mean, here, here's an illustration of this. Uh, imagine two children. Maybe you're a parent and if you have two or more kids, you can imagine these are your two kids and you tell them to go clean their room. Maybe some of you parents have done that. Go clean your room. Well, one of them goes to do it. And what do they do? Well, they take all their clothes and they throw it into the closet. And it's just one big pile in there. It's so jam-packed with dirty clothes and other things. And after pushing really, really hard, kind of jamming everything in there, they're, they're able to close the door. Can't see anything outside the door. They take their toys and they stuff them under the bed because, of course, that's what the area under the bed is for, right? All their papers, they stuff them in the desk drawers. They find important homework. They just crumple it up, though, because they have to get it out of sight. It's got to clean the room. The Hot Wheels are thrown under the bathroom sink. The dolls are in the bathtub behind the curtain. The trash is put under the covers of the bed. Everything is off the floor. And they run to you. Mommy, Daddy, I, I've done it. I've, I've cleaned my room. And you're, you're excited. You're like, wow. That's some, some great and fast obedience. And you, you go in there and you open the closet. And what happens? Well, it just kind of explodes on you. Everything just kind of falls there at your feet. It's so full. You open the drawers, you look under the bed, and under the covers on the bed is that old juice box that's now left a little stain on the sheets. And you say, what is this? And they answer, what? I, I cleaned up. Well, why did you put the trash under the covers? Well, you said clean the room. I picked everything up. Why did you put the dolls in the bathtub? Well, you didn't tell me where to put the dolls. You told me to clean the room. What about the, the crumpled up papers? You didn't tell me to organize the papers. You told me to clean my room. Now, a, a lot of parents are thinking that I'm talking about your child right now and using them as an illustration. I, I, I don't think I am. I don't know. Well, does that child clean the room out of law or out of grace? Well, law, that kid is interpreting the law for himself. That first child is the Pharisee lowering the law to their own requirements. And the Pharisees want you to think they're righteous, but it was all a show. You know, on the outside, their room was clean, but they were whitewashed tombs, a beautiful grave with dead bones inside. And they look good, but Jesus says it's like putting perfume or a pink ribbon around a pig. That's far easier than, than changing the pig. And the Pharisees are saying, look, we never murdered, we never committed adultery. And Jesus is saying, you've missed it because to not murder means you don't get angry with your brother. To not murder means you don't insult your brother. And adultery? Well, have you ever had a lustful thought? Love your brothers? Well, what more are you doing than others? Real love is loving people from different nationalities, different social classes. Real love is praying for those who persecute you. They were saying Jesus was relaxing the commandments. But you see that Jesus was actually doing just the opposite. The Pharisees were relaxing the commandments. The Pharisees were the ones negating the law. 
I mean, do you, do you see that? The Pharisees completely miss the point. Jesus' demands were way higher than the Pharisees. No anger, no lust, no hatred. Well, we're going to see those things later on in our study over the next couple months. But we need to understand here that Jesus' standard is like the second child who cleans their room and exhibits the heart of the law. So you go into their room and this child's obedience is amazing. Uh, They come into the room after you ask them to clean it. They see the Hot Wheel cars around and they pick them up and they, they assort them and put them organized according to color of car and size of car and they put them in the proper buckets. They set their stuffed animals on their bed like an army ready for battle. Their homework is finished, and they, they do it. They finish it, and they actually file it away and put it in their backpack and take their backpack by the front door ready for school the next day. Their closet looks like the store H&M when it opens in the morning. Right? They've actually taken out their clothes. They've folded it perfectly, neatly. They've organized the shorts and the socks and the shirts, and the closet is just immaculate. Bed is made. Now, I know some of you parents are praying right now, Lord Jesus, open my child's ears to hear your word right now. <laughs> right, we want that kid. Well, was that child under law or under grace? Was she obeying according to the letter of the law or according to the heart of the law? See, as a Christian, we go above and beyond in obedience to the demands of the law. It's easy to follow a list of rules to drink or to not drink, use this language or not, dress a certain way, do this, do that. But God says, I want your heart. I want your heart. We obey God in every area of our lives because we're a changed people. When we come to Christ and we're born again, we get a new heart. We get the Holy Spirit. And by God's grace, our motives are changed. In the rest of the chapter, Jesus is going to give us six ways we can live out the spirit of the law as his followers. And these verses today are really an introduction to the next six blocks of scripture where Jesus is going to flesh this out. Jesus is going to show us what this looks like in the areas of murder and anger, adultery and lust, divorce, oaths and honesty, retaliation, and then loving our enemies. Jesus is not abolishing the Old Testament and the law. He's not abolishing the Bible. The demands of the Bible are a higher standard. No no wonder the Pharisees are angry. No wonder they'll crucify him. They hated him because it's a righteousness too great for them to bear. They couldn't do it. Now, only when we have new hearts can we obey the demands of the Bible. If you have Christ's righteousness, you'll not only be better than the Pharisees, you'll be different than them. You'll be salt and light to the world. Remember, that's a key missional text that we see in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Bible. We as Christians are to be salt and light. And when we're living as changed humans, as changed believers with the Spirit living within us, when we're born again and when we see the demands of the law and when we seek to follow them, we will be salt and light in the world. We will be distinct from the world and will be a blessing to the world. We'll be able to follow that command, let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Oh, friends, if that's not you, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, go to Jesus. 
Because before we can look at anger and before we can look at lust and before we can look at loving our enemies, you have to ask yourself, do I know Jesus? Am I saved by grace? Only when the answer is yes will your life be changed. Oh, friends, Jesus died on the cross to fulfill the law and to free you to follow and obey his commands out of love. Not for salvation, but according to righteousness far better. Redeemer Church, look to Christ and you'll be transformed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to live honorable lives, to live for your glory. Would we serve not for public acclaim or superficial righteousness, but for your fame alone? Oh, Father, would our hearts be so inclined to pursue Christ in all things? Would we seek to have a radical obedience? Father, there are times that we might face trials, we might face difficulties. Oh, would we look to you as our soul's significance? Would we look to you in all things? Would we pursue you in all things? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.